Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. So this week, we are reporting back from the New York and London film festivals, respectively. Uh, we both saw quite a few movies at the festivals. I was done around a week ago, and Gav just finished at the London Film Festival. So we are here to provide you coverage with a lot of movies. I had a really good NIF. That's what we say. We call it NIF. Uh, I only saw one. It's that's that's what it's called. Um, I only saw one movie that I really didn't like, which I will tell you about. Um, but I felt really lucky to see a ton of really great stuff. Last year when we did this, and I think the year before also when we did the London Film Festival, we kind of just went through an endless list of movies that we had seen, and it was very, very, very long. So this yeah, I year... saw seventeen movies in a week, which is too many to talk about. <laughs> So this year, we're kind of going to be borrowing the format of a podcast that I enjoy a lot. Uh, this had Oscar buzz, which normally does episodes on movies that wanted to be Oscar movies and then very much were not. Uh, but they did an episode from the Toronto Film Festival where they kind of broke things down into categories that I really enjoyed listening to. Um, I'll post a link to it. Uh, but I found it an accessible way to kind of talk about a lot of films um, and the people on that saw even more than we did. So we're going to go through kind of talking about the movies in this way. And then at the end, we'll catch up with some other stuff that we haven't gotten around to mentioning. I also wrote on our Patreon um, a lot of little capsule reviews of the stuff I saw. So if you're interested in hearing more, you can head over there. So we're going to start off with uh, best performance that we saw at our respective festivals. Um, we have some overlap of movies we saw, but we mostly saw different things, I think. And I did not see as many movies as you did. But um, I saw a lot of really great performances um, this year. I'm trying to sort of uh, spread the love between the movies I liked in the little exercise that we're doing. But I think I can safely say that the best performance in a movie I saw at NIF this year was Olivia Colman in the favorite, which is the New Yorgos Lanthimos movie, which has gotten a ton of publicity already. Yeah, um, Yorgos Lanthimos is the guy who directed The Lobster and Killing of Sacred Deer, which we talked about last year and is a blast. Yes. So um, this movie also stars Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, who are great in it as well. It's as, so funny. Yes. So also Nicholas Holt, who is... Um, uh, truly superb and is not getting the same kind of press as the women, which is fine, but he's also awesome. Yorgos Lanthimos' other movies, both in Greek and in English, he is Greek, but then kind of trans transitioned into English language filmmaking, are very, very weird in a kind of rigid way. So there will be like a rule that is off. Um, something is deliberately very unsettling or uncanny or strange in the world of his movies. So The Lobster is the most famous example of this that probably most of you have seen, or the largest number of you have seen, um, which is that if people, single people are sent to, hotel, to a hotel, and if they don't find a partner within a month, then they get turned into an animal of their choice. I think that movie is really great, but has a lot of flaws. But it's just like totally, totally, totally bizarre. And Olivia Coleman actually has a small role in that also, which I had forgotten until I was watching The Favorite. The Favorite is the first movie he's made that was not written by him. And I think you can really, really tell watching it. There's a very specific performance style that he uses in The Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer, where 
there's this intentionally kind of stilted manner of speech which is kind of a love it or hate it sort of thing and I think if you're someone who maybe saw the lobster and was like a the speech was too weird for me or b this film is really disturbing you should come back and try the favorite anyway because I think that his sense of humor which is like very morbid absurd sense of humor really shines through in this movie but it's kind of a bit more conventional because it's a historical drama and I think like Morgan said because it's not written by him the dialogue feels different yeah so what's so great about this movie which is about um queen anne of england slash famously great very Britain. boring queen yeah which um 100 illustrated here while also it's super dramatic <laughs> yeah so this is the early 18th century and um his sensibility which is just like incredibly strange weird body sort of horror stuff um but not in a like horror genre kind of way just like weird weirdness with bodies weird stuff with animals the script has a lot of funny language play in it it's just slightly less bizarre than his other work and like the lobster and the killing of a sacred deer were he and his co-writer are both greek i don't know if they used not translators but like people sort of sprucing up the dialogue who are native english speakers but it's not like you would watch those movies and think like oh the people who made them don't know English, like, of course, not at all. But I think that definitely is a contributing factor in the sort of bizarreness of the language in a way that I like. I think it's really interesting. But I think in this movie, the fact that it is a little looser helps him a lot to have it just be like a little more human. And um, Olivia Coleman is this sort of figure in the middle of the movie who, despite being the queen... And so technically the most powerful person in the story doesn't have like any agency at all. Like all of these other people around her are trying to manipulate her constantly and she is very easily manipulated. And the movie kind of starts out with Emma Stone arriving at the palace and she's sort of the instigator of the narrative. But as the movie goes on, it becomes more and more Olivia Coleman's story. And I just found her unbelievably compelling. She's both hilarious and incredibly tragic. And I always hate it when people are like, this actress de-glammed for a role. But I think one of the great things about Olivia Coleman as an actress is that she clearly has never had any interest like throughout her career in like looking attractive. Like she's just a normal looking person. And in this movie, there's a lot of stuff about the queen's body that's pretty gross. And she is not playing a glamorous person. But she's at the center of a slapstick comedy lesbian love triangle between two really gorgeous, intelligent women. Yes. <laughs> and she just has no vanity at all. And it's not in a way that's like, oh, this beautiful, glamorous Hollywood actress has like decided to be slightly less beautiful for this role. It's like she just doesn't give a shit. And it's amazing. <laughs> it's just so, so great. I have loved her for a long time. I think she's an incredible actress, but I think this is the best thing I've ever seen her do. It's wild. She's so good. She's the best thing in a movie full of amazing things, I it's think. just hysterically funny movie. Yeah. Well, it's, the thing is, like, it's so funny. It's like, I went and saw this with um, a mutual friend of ours, and we were laughing hysterically the whole time. And yet, I also was genuinely, like, it made me really sad. I mean, it's a it's a really gripping drama. I think I engaged more with Emma Stone's character than you did. Yeah, yeah. It it does also have like this really intense dramatic element, and like you've got 
this really exaggerated version of the sort of intense classical music and sort of court intrigue and betrayals and stuff you get in this type of movie, but with sort of the sentimentality completely surgically removed. Yes. And one of the things I found really refreshing about it also was that all the women in this movie are just like awful. (laughs) Every single person in the whole movie is a shit. Oh yeah, 100%. But you are supposed to feel compassion for Rachel Weisz and Olivia Colman's characters. Emma Stone, I don't think you are supposed to feel bad for by the end of the movie. Whereas the men are just like total odious little like (laughs) twerps. And so even though the women are also awful, like they are the so the focus of the story in a way that I found refreshing. Like a movie can be about women in a really compelling way without the women being good, right? Like I was just, I mean, I saw this the day after the Kavanaugh hearings and I was like, this is what I needed. Like, thank you. Because it was just so like unrepentantly, I don't, I don't even know the word. Like, it was just really refreshing to me to be like yes thank you (laughs) this is a reminder that life is complex and women are people and oh good so yeah this movie's great you're all gonna like it it's just so much fun double bill of this and love and friendship (laughs) yes oh my god that would be (laughs) sublime (laughs) we need to move on from this but the costumes in this are also oh yeah superb yeah yeah Um, Just lots of great slapstick and also lots of great, really expensive sets and costumes and really great music choices. Did you notice that they filmed in the long hall that they use in every movie? It's in every movie. Yeah. And it's a great hall. Every time I see it, I'm like, good usage of the long wood panelled hall that is presumably permanently walled off for BBC costume dramas. (laughs) Then in, I think, an X-Men movie. It was in Wonder Woman. It was in something else I saw recently. (laughs) It's just in all films. Someone ought to just recreate that. Like, they have a set for the Oval Office. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, so best performance. I I mean, I agree with everything Morgan said about the favourite, basically. I saw 17 movies, and at this point, because I'm not a very actor-focused critic, I'm not like, oh yes, this was like the performance that moved me to tears this year. But I do have a slightly offbeat choice here, which is Vox Lux. It's not out yet. It's a film starring Natalie Portman and Jude Law and various other people, where Natalie Portman plays a pop star. I've already seen some comparisons to David Bowie and Lady Gaga, and I would just like to get out of the way before this comes out that those comparisons are nonsense. In fact, she is just someone who is wearing a lot of sparkly costumes. Artistically, she is meant to be like a generic pop star. The music in this movie is by Saya, but it's definitely like an indie drama that's a little bit weird. It's not like, oh, here's a a Star is Born kind of movie. So it's split into two halves, the first half of which is Natalie Portman's character Celeste um, as a teenager, played by Rafi Cassidy, who is the teenage girl from Killing of a Sacred Deer. And then the second half is 15 years later when Natalie Portman is this rock star as an adult. And I picked Natalie Portman here, admittedly, for the old sort of Oscar rule of like, oh, they award the performance to the most performance rather than the best performance. <laughs> but like this, this, this rule is just so much. It is so much. It is so fun. This film is definitely going to be divisive. Um, if people have issues with it, I will completely understand. But I enjoyed it a lot despite its flaws. 
some of them I can't discuss because it would be spoilers. Um, my couple of minor nitpicks would be that they have teenage Natalie Portman recording a music video in the year 2000 that looks like a Lady Gaga video and is therefore anachronistic. <laughs> I'm like, this should look like a fucking Mandy Moore video or something. It's completely wrong for the time period. But yeah, like her, her role is just highly entertaining because obviously Natalie Portman is very good at playing sort of histrionic characters. And in this, she's histrionic, but she's also dumb. Um, <laughs> and she has like a really strong Staten Island accent and she's a huge bitch. I love it. I love it already. She's just really immature and unpleasant and also very attractive, but vain. <laughs> this sounds incredible. I I've mostly seen negative things about this movie, but you're really selling yeah, it to no, me. This is the thing, right? It's just really fun. And I was just like, Morgan, who, like me, is really into um, Velvet Goldmine, you will enjoy it for the same reason. Because if it's as if they made a whole, a whole movie that's just about the Velvet Goldmine rock star... But he's a woman. And Natalie Portman, the rock star's manager, is Jude Law, using his young Pope accent and wearing, like, a tracksuit the whole time. <laughs> Cursing in front of teenage girls, but not in a threatening way, just because he's an idiot who doesn't understand you're not meant to curse in front of 15-year-old girls. <laughs> so, oh, it's it's just really fun, while also being very serious. Um, Something that I didn't expect, but... I wouldn't really consider it to be a, main, a major spoiler because it happens in like the first five minutes. But like the deciding factor in Celeste's life is that as a teenager, she survives a school shooting. So it opens with a school shooting, which was like really interesting and unexpected to me, but also made me think maybe maybe it should have more warnings. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, maybe that will be in the trailers when it come out. But anyway, Natalie Portman having a lot of fun in an unexpected and highly entertaining role which I'm sure, as with many of Natalie Portman's more extreme roles, will be hated by a lot of people because um, some people don't like Natalie Portman. But they can go to the same place that the Anne Hathaway haters go, which is straight to hell. <laughs> yes, I support that statement. Correct. So the next category is biggest surprise. Uh, Morgan, what was your kind of most surprising movie slash element of the festival? Um, so mine was the, actually the Palm d'Or winner this year, which not be surprising because generally the films that win the Palm d'Or get a ton of attention, but I have not found that this one has gotten much attention, at least in the sort of Western world. Uh, it's called Shoplifters. It's yeah, it was by... not even screening at London. Yeah. So it's the newest film by the Japanese director Hirokazu Koreeda, whom I have definitely heard of. I haven't seen anything by him. Um, Asian cinema is definitely one of my major deficiencies as a viewer, uh, in large part because it doesn't tend to get released as widely in America as, say, French movies do. But it won the Palme d'Or. It definitely got good reviews. It wasn't like got poorly received or anything but it just hasn't received a lot of press um but i bought a ticket to it because it won the palm door and we live in a world where awards have an effect so i was like this movie looks fine and i loved it so much i think i'm not putting this in my like favorite of the festival category because i don't think it was technically the best film but it's the one that has sort of emotionally stayed with me the most with maybe one exception which i'll get to later it's about this family living in tokyo that has very very little money there are quite a few of them and they're all living in this tiny little apartment and they wind up taking in this very young girl who's being 
sort of abused, neglected by her parents. It's all sort of done quite subtly. But her parents live down the street and they just kind of take her in, but then the parents never look for her. So they have technically kidnapped her, but the parents aren't looking for her. So the whole time you're watching the movie, you know something bad is going to happen with the situation because you can't just take a child off the street and then nothing ever happens to you, right? Like clearly something's going to go down with this family. But it's all so carefully observed that you kind of try to forget about that as you're watching. So like there's this matriarch figure who is kind of in charge of the family and then this couple who are kind of the parent figures to this girl and then this other young boy and the father is like teaching them how to shoplift and that's largely how they subsist like they have a couple low-paying jobs also but um it's really funny and also the stuff about kind of like abuse and child abuse is incredibly sensitively done and not hokey at all and it was very upsetting to me um but in a way that like felt good to be watching and then the end it's hard to talk about because I don't want to spoil it. And it's just really hard to, to discuss. But it was a genuine twist that made me think about the movie in a totally different way. That is, which is very rare without again being like cheap. But this was the only movie I saw, I think at the festival that made me cry. And by that, I mean, I got choked up because I don't cry at movies, but like it really, really got to me. And there's one performance in particular that would have been probably my number two on the like best performance list, which was this actress, Sakura Ando, who plays the sort of like mother figure who was so amazing. Like I cannot even describe. So um, if this comes out near you, which like it will get a release at some point, it'll probably only play in like New York and LA or in Chicago or something. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And it will obviously eventually come out on streaming and I'll tweet about it when it does but like it's so good it's so good and it was just like a really pleasant thing to be at the festival and like see this movie that I was sort of just like oh this will be fun to see and then be like this is amazing and I'm very upset now it's great it was I was really happy to see it so it's Shoplifters um by Coriada and you should all watch it yeah I was just thinking about this while you're watching and I was like there are definitely no films where I received something unexpected. Like I didn't go into any movies being like, oh, this is absolutely garbage and I was expecting it to be great or vice versa. But I saw plenty of movies that I basically knew nothing about going into. And the one that was the most surprising (laughs) was the first one I saw at the festival, which was a very good sort of introduction because it was like a nice palate cleanser after my normal job of watching a lot of sort of mediocre superhero media Um, (laughs) the first movie I saw literally after getting off the train from from Glasgow to London um, was a Swedish movie called Border um, which won the Uncertain Regard award at Cannes this year which is sort of the one they give to idiosyncratic foreign language dramas basically Um, and it's directed by a Swedish Iranian director named Ali Abbasi and I guess you could describe it as fantasy horror drama. It's not sort of genre-ish, but it definitely conceptually is fantasy. It's about a woman who works for the Swedish border guards as a sniffer. Um, She sniffs contraband with her extraordinary sense of smell. And she's extremely ugly. 
She has very unusual facial features, which are constructed using makeup, but you would absolutely believe it was real. Which makes it doubly frustrating that so many mainstream movies have bad makeup and bad anti-aging technology. Because I saw other films at the festival where it was like, why does Nicole Kidman's wig look so bad? Whereas in this film, I was like, this is definitely a woman who is unusually ugly, but doesn't look fake. But like, essentially, like, it's, it's definitely comedic. It's not like, here's a really grim film about someone with a terrible job. But basically, she has a rather depressing life. Like, she lives with this shitty guy in a shack in the forest with a bunch of horrible dogs that she doesn't like. And her life isn't really very happy. And you can kind of tell it's, like, played into the fact that she is so unusually unattractive that it's, like, isolated her from society. But also, she doesn't really see any particular point in integrating that much. But she is a relatively like nice and good person without being like, oh, she's become a caring, wonderful person with a great personality because she's ugly because like that would be garbage. But this sort of the after we're introduced to her life, the sort of turning point of this movie is that a creepy guy is walking through customs and he looks very similar to her. He has the same construction of ugly facial features and they start like erotically sniffing each other. And I will tell you a minor spoiler because I feel like this is the one element of the movie where I was like, I couldn't really tell if it was a bit like, mm, or not. But this person is taken off to be like checked by the border guards because she's like, something smells off. Um, and the border person figures out that he has a vagina, basically. So it's sort of like there was like a gender thing going on and, I, and they don't like clarify if this means that like, this guy's meant to be trans or what, but I'm like, I don't know if it's like appropriate to have like an association with monstrousness and being intersex or transgender, but I didn't feel like it was presented in an offensive way, just to like give people like a a little warning before they go into the movie. However, this kind of turns into, I wouldn't describe it as a romance, but they're sort of moved to be attracted to each other. This guy is gross and like, not like physically gross, but like he's unpleasant right you can completely (laughs) understand why she's into him because clearly he smells really interesting and they've both got this unexplained similarity um which sort of goes into sort of like a fantasy mythology element which screws around with her life significantly i can't yeah i'm I'm trying to like dodge around this without like spoiling what the film is about but there's a lot of sort of interesting themes to do with transracial adoption and like exploitation but in a sort of absurdly funny, gross way. And the fact that it's like a Swedish language indie drama where people have really gross sex and eat live maggots off the ground really made me prepared for the artistic experience of spending a week watching a lot of movies. It's definitely not for the faint of heart. There was like, there was definitely a sex scene where I had to close my eyes because I was like, please stop like salivating on each other and stuff. Um, But it was, yeah. Um, I would recommend it. I would recommend this film. Yeah. Um, wow. So <laughs> this was one of the ones that I really wanted to see at NIF and I just, it was playing at like one weird, like 9.30 PM showtime. And I was like, I cannot do this, but it's gotten a lot of press. I've seen a lot of people talking about it in a positive way. So, um, but I didn't know anything about what it, I just had seen that title. I've given away some of the content. <laughs> That's fine. You've you've made me more intrigued. So <laughs> Yeah, it's like I think oh, like man. um 
given that the concept of monster fuckery is like such a high point in the news, this is the one which is not sexy. Yes. They've taken the topic seriously and they're not like, here's a very attractive swamp creature. They're like, here's some people who smell stuff and look really conventionally unattractive and live in a weird shack in the forest. (laughs) (laughs) And like to like slobber all over each other. God bless. I mean, congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) You've made your film. It's playing at film festivals. It's the dream, really. Yeah. And it's uh, pretty pretty solidly well written. So um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on from that, uh, let's do biggest disappointment. Uh, I have one. I saw one bad movie at this festival, and it I hated it. It was very bad. It was Burning by Lee Chang Dong. It was a, it's a South Korean movie, and it was rapturously received out of Cannes. I've seen so much more press for this than for Shoplifters, and I do not understand. I mean, presumably they all. have really good press people. Uh, yes, but the reviews were, like, through the roof. So, so basically, this is based on a short story by Murakami. A short story. This is important, because this movie is (laughs) two and a half hours long, 2.5 hours from a short story. This is not necessary. Oh, it's the Hobbit of indie dramas. Yes, literally. It was so fucking long, I cannot even begin to describe to you. I went with my friend, and we were both just like, Still going, huh? We're still here. This is still happening. A lot of the movies I saw were over two hours long. And it's just, it's just too long. Like, unless you really have a good reason for it. And I, I think Shoplifters was like two hours and ten minutes or something. So it's not like it can't be done. But this was just interminable. There was almost no plot. And it was that long. And like, this is just not, this is not acceptable. Thank you for warning me. <laughs> yes. But also the plot that did exist was like, so basically it's about this young guy in South Korea who has gotten a creative writing degree at university and then can't get a job. And he runs into like an old friend of his, or like not even friend, but like just woman he knew when he was growing up. And they wind up sort of having this budding romance. She goes off on a trip and then meets this like, extremely attractive, extremely wealthy man. Um, and then they are start going out, and then the first guy is, like, left in the lurch of it. There's also this whole thing going on with his parents that literally does not matter and should not be in the movie because it's irrelevant. Uh, but the, like, hot rich dude is played by Stephen Yen. He was in Sorry to Bother You. He was in The Walking Dead. He is a Korean-American, but he's speaking Korean- you know, fluently in this movie. He is fantastic. He's playing this, like, very kind of unsettling, threatening character. And so he's the one good thing about the film. He's clearly going to be a big star. I look forward to seeing him in other movies. But, um, basically, the woman is, like, a manic pixie dream girl. Like, to a degree that's exhausting. And then she kind of vanishes. And the... normal man is trying to figure out where she's gone and I'm just gonna kind of spoil the movie because you all should I mean unless you're really interested in Korean cinema I don't recommend it starts to think that the rich dude has killed her and it's never totally confirmed what happened has happened but it certainly seems like that is what has occurred and so if this movie had just been 90 minutes it could have been like a taut thriller 
with some problematic gender elements, but like an entertaining movie. And instead it is two and a half hours long. I'm just like, why? And so I was doing some reading about it and it sounds like there's a lot of kind of subtextual stuff about like Korean society and like class stuff with the two guys, one of whom is rich, one of whom is it. And like all of this stuff that I would not have picked up on as an American who doesn't know very much about Korea watching it. And like, I completely am willing to believe that that is the case. But it was still sexist and it was still boring. So like, (laughs) ah! I was, it was really a bummer because I'd been really looking forward to it because the reviews were great. And then I just, it just went on. (laughs) Like, I'm just tired of the like woman is object trope. There's a scene where she does like an interpretive dance with no shirt on for many minutes for no reason. Just like, come on, we don't need that. There's no reason for this to be here. Nope. So, um, yeah, I don't recommend that film. Uh, and you also had something that you did not enjoy very much. I did. So, <laughs> so it wasn't, like, terrible, but it was unnecessary. And I think that the creators can do better because they are the Coen brothers. <laughs> so the Coen brothers, who most people have probably seen and enjoyed at least one film by... Um, they had had like a passion project for a long time, which finally got made because Netflix gave them money, which is, as we are learning very rapidly, is seldom good. But basically it's an anthology film of six Western short stories, like Wild West stories, which they've written over the course of like 25 years. Um, It's a very star-studded cast. Um, They've got famous people in each of these six unconnected stories. Um, And the the stories are like pretty original, although they're all very reliant on classic Western tropes because... That's kind of the point of the movie. Um, so you've got actors like Tom Waits, Liam Neeson, James Franco, Brendan Gleeson, various other people you will recognise. You will also notice from this cast list that it is all about white men. It is just, I, I was just like, I just was just like, ugh, I was annoyed. Because the Coen brothers do have like a great deal of creative freedom here and they can kind of do whatever they want. And they were like, we're only going to write stories about white men. One of the six stories has a female protagonist um, surrounded by guys. But it was just like, it was just really like annoying to me on top of the fact that it's just not a very good movie. Like technically speaking, they're obviously very accomplished filmmakers. So it's very beautiful to look at and like well edited and the casting choices are like fun apart from the fact that they're really exclusionary. But it was like, why? Why have you done these things? Why have you made a, f- a film that just makes me remember how great Old Brother Where Art Thou is compared to this? <laughs> um, and it's like, this was initially planned as a TV series. And I think that would have been worse because it would have been really much more obvious how exclusionary the casting was. And also the concepts just aren't enough to flesh out a whole episode of a TV show. But um, also... So, like, it's meant to be the celebration of the Western genre, basically. Like, it's kind of based on, like, old western serial books and that sort of thing before um, the wild west movies were a thing it's not like oh here's a subversion of any of that stuff they're like yeah it's completely legit to have native american characters only appear on screen so that they can do like a bunch of war whoops and try and scout people and then get shot by the white protagonists and it's like i mean there's been like a lot of a lot of analysis into how that was racist literally a hundred years ago when people had just started making westerns and i figured we were over that by now but no No. (laughs) um and then you know 
obviously, at least one quarter of cowboys were black. <laughs> uh, a famed statistic that is brought up for every Western movie now, and uh, they did not give a shit about for this. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things I wrote about in my review is like, it's not like I'm like, every movie needs to be diverse. First of all, if you have like a very specific character you want to be telling a story about. Yeah, the example I gave was There Will Be Blood, right? Which is like in a similar kind of wheelhouse to this. Obviously, it's much, much less comedic, but it's like very specifically about this male character and like the men that surround him and sort of toxic masculinity and what have you. Or Master and Commander or Lord of the Rings, where the characters are either based in a story where everyone's a man or it's like a situation where everyone's a man. Whereas here, they were just like, we've taken a scenario where there was a very diverse range of people and probably a 50-50 gender split and they've just decided to focus on like all of these old white dudes. So like, whatever. I have I have belabored this point too much, but um, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is not good. Well, yeah, so I love the Coen brothers. Um, I'm, I'm still definitely going to see this just because I find them so interesting as filmmakers. I've heard in general very, very mixed things, so I'm not going to go with high expectations at all. But this, like... You talking about this made me think a lot about uh, another movie that just came out, <laughs> just to bring more films in that weren't even at the film festivals. Uh, the Sisters Brothers, which was a massive, massive flop, which starred uh, John C. Riley, Joaquin Phoenix, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Riz Ahmed, and um, it got very good reviews. It was billed as this like revisionist western, blah 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 blah, talked about in very kind of similar terms as this film, right? And obviously, Riz Ahmed is not white. And they got a lot of press for having, like, one to two scenes. I think it was two scenes. Um, with a character played by a trans woman. And this is not remarked upon in the film. Which, like, is... Like, that's great. But there's... Like, there was nothing about it. And, like, the fact that Riz Ahmed is not white is also not remarked upon in the film. And I don't think that in and of itself is a problem. I think that that's actually kind of, like, cool. Like, I think they cast him because they thought he was a good actor which like he is but the movie itself was just boring and not <laughs> subverting anything right so like i don't love westerns but i like revisionist westerns a lot because there are these sort of like standard tropes that you can play with in a really interesting way so like the assassination of jesse james by the coward robert ford is one of my favorite movies i love slow west like there's a lot of stuff you can do with this but this movie wasn't doing any of them like it was just about a bunch of dudes there were other issues with that film we don't need to get into, but it sounds like it's a sort of similar thing here where like the Coen brothers tend to make movies about white slash white Jewish men, not always, but that is generally their area. And when that is the sort of specific thing they're doing, that's okay. But to then go into this new space and not do any sort of genre commentary, like why, what's the point? Also they made true grit which is about a girl and actually isn't like a genius film, like has something to yeah. say. I mean, I would say that that film is fine. And also that yeah. film has, you know, it's, it's just like, it has like a natural, just like normal story structure. That's about yeah. a character growing. Whereas this is yeah. like, it is very much like short stories. They've just spent several million dollars on what if James Franco was a cowboy. And it's like, that is for many reasons unnecessary. Yes. <laughs> oh boy. Well, you can't win them all. No. So let's let's move on to uh, best movie. Best movie you saw. Best movie yes. you saw at the festival. So we've already discussed the favorite. And, and 
I was yes. just gonna say I think we have the same thing here. So. Yeah, we've already we've already you could discussed say the it. favorite, and the other two best movies I saw were Sorry to Bother You and Roma. Roma was my number one movie. Why don't you say a little bit about Sorry to Bother You first? My answer to this is also Roma. I saw Sorry to Bother You uh, several months ago when it was released in the U.S. It has quite publicly had a difficult time getting release in yeah, the that, that is unfortunately why we've not done a solo episode on Sorry to Bother You. It's not even coming out in general release here until January. So for those who are asking for for us to do a review episode, this is the review episode for Sorry to Bother You because otherwise it would just be like really untimely by January. But yeah, I mean, I feel like anyone who's really into film in America is already aware that this is one of the most interesting movies of the year. So it's directed by Boots Riley, who's better known as a musician. This is like his directorial debut. It stars Lakeith Stanfield and Tessa Thompson. So it's already like a really cool cast. And uh, for those who aren't aware of it, it's um, it's like an alternate present day, slightly surreal story about capitalism. It's funny, but like darkly funny. Yeah, I don't really want to compare it to anything because it's it's very unique stylistically in a way that really, really worked for me. Um, but the main character is this guy who, you know, he has no money. It starts off with him getting a job in a call centre. His girlfriend is an artist and she's a bit more political than him, but basically they're both living in this really kind of shitty capitalist system while trying to, like, maintain their their originality and personality and, like, hang out with their friends and stuff. All of the stuff in the background is you'll see, like, adverts for modern day slavery but it's like in a sort of silicon valley situation where it's like would you like to move into our we work space and just live here forever on a lifetime contract and it's all displayed very comically like it is a really funny movie and visually it's really colorful like the costumes are fantastic um the way they illustrate the call center stuff is like he's physically dropped into people's houses whenever he makes a call and sort of the the turning point in the first act is the point where one of his older co-workers sort of explains to him that he'll find success in this job if he uses his like quote-unquote white voice to talk to customers so and then people will be like oh yeah you're like a really relatable person I can I can I can give money to for the bullshit you're selling over the phone and so really quickly this makes him really successful at work so his career is sort of on the up in this shitty call center job because he's pretending to be white on the phone. Meanwhile, everyone else who's there is getting treated really badly because it's a shitty call center job. And one of the other uh, central characters is Stephen Yen, who is kind of the political agitator in the office. He's like trying to start a union. And then in the background, there is an incredibly entertaining performance from Army Hammer, who's this business CEO guy who isn't in the movie really until sort of the final third um but he's sort of your ultimate like terrible psychotic like business success like startup owner monster who's like ruining the world with capitalism and just like everything in this film resonates a lot generationally like I feel like there's just so much to relate to for pretty much anyone who isn't a blinkered conservative rich person. <laughs> so it's like anyone who's like under the age of 40 and isn't in denial about the state of the world, this movie just feels really real. And even though it's like, it's about black people and it's very like, it's it's very much like about race in America. I was still like, this is so relatable to me because like I worked in a shitty call center job and also I live in the current world and I'm aware of like the news about how capitalism is fucking everything. Um, so yeah, it's 
it's really entertaining but also very dark and interesting like my only kind of real criticism is that it doesn't exactly meander but it kind of goes on too long and I feel like they could have sort of trimmed the second half a bit but yeah I did not love this film I saw it over the summer and I bold unpopular opinion (laughs) I'm not the only person with this opinion it was obviously very 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 well received I was very impressed by its audacity it like there are a number of moves in this movie that are bold (laughs) especially near the end i'm not sure the end totally works but i respected them for for doing what they did i cannot say more if you have not seen the movie it would be a huge spoiler oh god yeah those of you who know what i'm talking about everyone was like do not do not spoil what happens in the movie so i had no fucking clue apart from the fact Mm -hmm. that you know watching the trailer you know that the visual style is very unusual and it's quite bold yeah but i have barely thought about it since i saw it which is obviously, like, certain movies are going to hit you in a certain way. And, like, a lot of people really love this movie, which is fine. But it didn't do that for me at all. And I think that a lot of that is that the, like, a lot of the world building and ideas are really, really smart and innovative. So all the stuff with the company that's, like, enslaving people functionally is so, like, spot on and, like, horrifying and, like, ugh. And a lot of the call center stuff is really smart. But I don't think the characters are that interesting. Tessa Thompson definitely gets the it has the worst role. Like she's just playing a girlfriend. Like she has a girlfriend part in this movie in a way that I found tedious. But even Lakeith Stanfield, who I find I think is an amazing actor. Like that character, it's not like he has no personality. He definitely does, but I think that the way this movie was most obviously like a first film to me and it definitely felt like a first film even though Boots Riley obviously like is super talented was that the plot lines having to do with like the characters and their emotions were not nearly as original as the world building stuff and it felt to me as though his like political ideas and philosophy which you can tell from Twitter are like incredibly incredibly sophisticated and well-developed and like he knows what he's talking about and he completely believes all this stuff so much but this is only the first feature film that he's made and like it's really hard (laughs) to make a movie and that stuff just didn't I didn't find it as compelling and I the like the character who definitely hit me the most was the army hammer character who was so terrifying and I kept like after the fact like, when I talked to people about it, I'd mention him and then be like, I feel bad mentioning, like, the white dude in this movie, but I think he is playing the most kind of distinct person in it, even though he's not in it for that long. And I think the fact that he isn't in it for that long actually helps because he can just show up and be, like, insane for, like, ten minutes. Which, I mean, literally, he just shows up and he's a fucking nutcase. Yeah. And that is kind of easier to do in a way than to play the character who isn't as like distinct um so the what i mostly got from it was that i will be really interested to see his next film boots riley's next film i mean um because i suspect it will be better than this but that's my i mean i i agree that the two leads are like not especially complex but that definitely didn't like detract from my experience at all and i mean it's 
also partly intentional, right? Because like the whole concept is they're meant to be just like relatively normal people and sort of the the reason, like the, the central conflict for most of the film is that Lakeith Stanfield's character is basically quite a passive person, which is also like generally relatable because like 99% of people are not intensive anti-capitalist campaigners, even if they are like him completely aware of how shit the world is, right? So um, he's sort of seeing people around him starting to organise and he's like, well, what if I can just make my life easier by earning money by doing my white voice? Um, but yeah, it's like, that does mean that Army Hammer's character is like much more vibrant because he is just this absolute nutso supervillain and you can actually see the psychotic glint in his eye. It's like, it's an astoundingly like entertaining and terrifying performance. So yeah, he was also my favourite like performance in the movie. I mean, I see where you're coming from with the other criticisms, but it just wasn't something that really registered yeah. for me at all. I was just like, wow, this movie is just all round incredible. Like, especially conceptually, like you said, because like the political content is so... Um, it just reflects opinions that you don't really see reflected in mainstream pop culture at all. It's like if someone who is like yelling about stuff on Tumblr was also a genius with access to millions of dollars. Yes. I mean, I'm glad it did well. I didn't think it was bad. I just thought it could have been better, which is often the case, again, with like a first feature because it's really difficult. Um, and the Tessa Thompson thing was the thing that got me the most. Like, she is so unbelievably charismatic and talented that it doesn't feel as egregious as it is when you're watching it. But, like, her whole performance art thing, and then the, she has a subplot with the Stephen Young character that makes no sense. That I was just like, must we? Must we do this? I thought but the performance art was very funny. I, no. <laughs> I was like, this is so real to me. <laughs> I mean, it was not unrealistic in terms of like terrible performance art, but the fact that that's like what she gets to do in the film is like, mm. but she just needs to start getting cast as like leads in movies instead of playing the girlfriend over and over and over again, which she has had to do numerous times yeah she the thing is right that it's like as girlfriend go, roles go she's like the girlfriend role in this and she's the girlfriend role in creed and i would say in the annals of absolute pure girlfriend role where that is the defining trait of the character those are like two of the best i've ever seen but also she needs to escape from this yeah. i'm sure she is trying her utmost and god knows everyone fucking loves her so at some point I mean, maybe after Men in Black comes out, she will immediately yeah. be handed like a million rolls. One can only hope. So that may have been slightly cut off because uh, we recorded this episode uh, all in one go and it turned into two episodes because we had a great deal of stuff to talk about from the film festival. So this episode is, you've just listened to, so it's already out. But the there will be another episode dropping shortly with more coverage of the film festival, including uh, a pretty long discussion of the new Alfonso Cuaron movie, Roma, which we both really, really loved. Um, so that will be coming to you soon. Uh, if you want to find us anywhere, you can find us at Patreon on, at www.patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast uh, at our website, overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast. Thanks. Bye.